All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Penn Talk, the podcast. This is episode four. My name is Brendan Penn, and I'm coming to you live from Baltimore County, Maryland. And I wanna thank all of you for joining us here. And I hope that wherever you are joining us from, that you are safe and healthy and comfortable, and that you find this space that we're in together also comfortable and safe. Um, tonight's episode will be recorded. Um, we'll only release the audio. Um, Penn Talk, the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, any place where you get your podcast. Um, you can also go to our website, which is pentalkpodcast.wixsite.com backslash home. Or you can follow me on Twitter at MrPen31. Um, we are live on Zoom. And so that I ask if you're not speaking and you're just listening to please mute your microphone. Um, in the chat box, I will add the Padlet link. Padlet is a great resource um, online tool to collect different articles, videos, and we can have one central hub. So I'll put that link in there. If you wanna share anything um, that, that you're thinking about or that you think is important, definitely drop it in the chat box. Chat box. I'll add it to the Padlet. And you can find the, each Padlet from each episode on our website that I gave earlier. Um, so later in the podcast, we will discuss the role of educators today in 2020 as we strive towards equity, we move into digital learning and hopefully very quickly move into a post COVID-19 world. Um, but first I wanna introduce our featured guest. Uh, I'm honored that he's here with us. We have Councilman Julian Jones Jr. with us who represents the fourth district in Baltimore County. Councilman Jones is a lifelong public servant and I wanna thank you for your dedication to our Maryland communities. He was the division chief in the Anne Arundel County Fire Department for 29 years. He led Maryland fire and EMS crews on a rescue mission to New Orleans after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. He is a UMBC alum, a member of the Caucus for African-American Leaders, and a two-term member of the Baltimore County Democratic Central Committee. And he's been a Baltimore County Councilman since 20, 2014. So Councilman, welcome to Penn Talk. Thank you for joining us. Brandon, can you hear me? Okay, great. It is uh, my pleasure to be here. I'm. Uh, give me one second. Let me let this dog out. Sure. And so, actually, I ran into Councilman Jones at a Black Lives Matter protest, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But how are you? Happy Father's Day! Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate you having me, and I appreciate you uh, doing this topic and your service uh, to the county and this and the young uh, people that you teach is uh, exceptional and certainly worth uh, uh, praising. So I certainly appreciate all you're doing. Thank you, and I, I appreciate that. that. That means a lot. Um, and so the last time I saw you was at the Black Lives Matter protest in Ricerstown. Um, and that was an amazing experience. In my opinion, I was very impressed with the solidarity and the passion, and it was really led by young people. Um, as a public servant, what were your impressions uh, of that protest? Well, I was extremely impressed with the protests. Uh, I've been to quite a few protests and the one in Town was uh, similar or just like all the others I've been to. I, to see so many young people and old people, people from various races, uh, just the full spectrum of America, their protest and saying enough is enough was very encouraging to me and uh, I could tell you at that particular rally, a gentleman had came up uh, to some 
young people that were standing in front of me and I was just standing there waiting. And uh, he said to them, it was an older white guy. He was, I don't know, probably 60 some years old. He just finished walking his three miles. And he came up to them out of the blue and said, you know, I've been, in, I've been naive all my life. I, I, I never believed that these things happened. And now it's like my eyes are open and I'm trying to make a change. And, you know, it was just very, very uh, touching to hear that because I, I think that's where we are today. Uh, people are, you know, you can't deny it when it's in front of your very eyes. And uh, so people are asking for change. I, I felt the same way. I was meeting so many people, young people that didn't look like me, older people, and we were just talking about experiences and, and marching together. And it was it was a really great experience. Um, and that was really the genesis of this podcast. As educators, you know, we can't have the excuse of we didn't know, especially as we, you know, teach in the fourth district in Owings Mills and Randallstown, we, we teach black and brown kids. As educators, we need to make sure that we are able to meet the needs of our families, whatever that may be. And so talking about these issues is something that we haven't done for a long time and is really necessary. So this, this space was created for that reason. Um, and I thank you um, for joining us. But we really want to get into, you've introduced um, some legislation that's coming up um, around police reform. And we know that, you know, police departments and policing in general all over the country are under the microscope. Um, before you share the contents of what's in the bill, um, can you talk of us, walk us through the why? Why is it important that there is some reform happening in our local police department, the Baltimore County Police Department? So, uh, first of all, let me just start by saying we have a very good police department. We, uh, if you were to look across the country in terms of policies, procedures, uh, we have a very good police department. But that does not mean we have been immune from issues concerning the police. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the culture of policing here in 2020 in America, the culture, the training. You know, I was having a conversation with someone and they said, well, you know, we use all these national standards. I said, but the problem is this. We've come to a place where police officers making the standards, which is geared towards their safety, is running contrary to the public who is paying for the police department and they're saying, we don't like what we're seeing. We don't like it. So uh, once upon a time, you know, it's something that I would wrestle with as a elected official. You know, you think to yourself, well, if there's something to do with police, why wouldn't you ask the police? After all, they're the experts, ask them. But we've come to a place in America where the people are saying, I'm not so sure we like that answer. We have a different way that we want you to do. We want some, something different than what we're seeing. So again, we have a very good police department, but my attempt is to make it better. 100%. And to make sure that no one die uh, or is brutalized at the hands of uh, police who are sworn to protect them. I agree. And then, so tell us a little bit about the specifics of the reform bill. What, what are some things that you feel or the community feels, I'm sure you've talked to lots of constituents and you know lots of police officers and, and ser servants, you know, what are some of the reforms that you think are necessary in, in our department? Well, I have uh, 11 specific reforms right now. 
and I'll go through them relatively fast and, you know, folks, you know, we can ask questions, but let me just say, uh, I've been working on this for quite some time and uh, it really got hot and heavy for these last three or four weeks. And uh, I've pushed this out to quite a few officers. Most of them said they support just about everything here because a lot of good officers out there do not like an officer that is abusive or goes too far. They, they don't like it. And uh, one officer told me uh, two things real fast. One guy told me, he says, when I saw the George Floyd video, I had to go to work that night. I didn't want to put a uniform on. I thought about calling in sick. He said, I literally looked at my uniform for probably about 10 minutes trying to decide if I could go to work that night. Another officer told me he rather endure the dangers of not having a backup as opposed to having somebody who's going to make things go wrong. Uh, so anyway, uh, getting into the specifics of the bill. Uh, the first thing is it requires additional training of police officers on de-escalation techniques, implicit association testing and inherent biases and use of physical and lethal force. Uh, the second uh, pillar, if you will, is it disqualifies any person or police officer who has been previously employed as a police officer in another jurisdiction or another agency that have been terminated, resigned in connection with disciplinary proceedings, either pending or sustained. Uh, and then the third part is it defines and requires the use of de-escalatory techniques before a police officer may use physical violence. And one of the things with that one, I'll just say, oftentimes, one of the things that is troubling to me is when I look at some of these scenarios and there is no violence at that time, yet the police are the ones who start the violence. Why? Because someone did not uh, conform to what they say or somebody didn't do what they say. So the answer is oftentimes to make them comply. And I'm reminded of a kid in Woodlawn uh, didn't want to get arrested. He was a peacemaker. He was sitting on the curb. The officer grabs his hand. She pulls his hand. He pulls it back. She pulls his hand. He pulls it back. She goes for his neck. And next thing you know, another officer is beating this kid. And it's like, was that really necessary? Was there a better way to make that happen? Uh, number four, it defines and limits the use of physical force by police officers. Number five, it prohibits the use of chokeholds or anything that causes some next neck asphyxiation technique. Anything to cut off that airway is will be illegal. It requires police officers to intervene and report when another police officer uses unnecessary or excessive force. And the seventh uh, pillar is like a whistleblower protection. It provides whistleblower protection for any officer who does intervene or report an officer for unnecessary or excessive force. Number eight, it requires police officers to render first aid or medical attention. Number nine, requires the department to implement an early intervention system, which includes a database with the use of force and lethal force statistics for police officers who may be at risk for engaging in excessive physical force or unnecessary force. Sort of like an early warning system. If the standard is two per year or the average is two and you're hitting five or eight, then somebody needs to uh, intervene. Uh, requires use of force in police-involved shooting, deaths, data collection, and analysis by the department, 
And then last, it requires the department to public and to to requires the department to publish this information, display it, and then uh, report it to agencies that require it. For example, the Justice Department collects information on everything that you can imagine dealing with crime, except for how many people are killed by the police. That is voluntary. So a department can comply or not comply. So if you look at the state of Florida, for example, every police department in Florida, none of them published anything to the Justice Department in terms of how many people died at the hands of a police officer. So that information needs to be put out there and it needs to be uh, studied and analyzed. So that's it. I, I think those are um, reasonable. And I think you, you got, got I missed one. I missed one, I uh, forgot, number 12. Uh, it requires the police chief to appoint two members of the public to the police hearing board. Okay. That's it. Is this, is the, is that information you just read to us, is that available now or not yet? Are yes, gonna... it's available now. I have a draft bill uh, that I'll be sharing. I mean, anybody can have it. Uh, I have to double check and see if they put it on the county's website yet. They need to give it a number, but uh, that information is available. Okay, so we'll, we'll look for it and I'll put that on the Padlet. Um, and were, were you the only writer of this bill or did you collaborate with other council members? And then once you, like you said, you've been working on this for a while, once you bought this bill and proposed it to the other just council members, was there pushback or is everybody on board with this? Well, I would love to say everyone was on board, but right now uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, right now, I don't have any co-sponsors on the bill. Uh, maybe it's too early for them. So, you know, uh, we'll give them some time to study it. I'll be reaching out to each and every one of them. But right now, I can tell you that uh, I'm the only one on the bill. Understood. Um, a question from the group. This is from Catherine. She wanted to know, can some of these proposals be implemented without a national database on police misconduct, which has been proposed? And what is your view on how likely that would happen? Well, uh, the national database is a great idea, right? So that goes back to the one where I say you can't hire somebody who resigned or was fired because of some pending disciplinary charges. Uh, the issue there a national database, I think, will pass because that's sort of like a no-brainer. Now that the pressure on, that's low-hanging fruit. It'll be a national database. So people will be able to see if an officer was fired or, or, or I'm not sure how it's going to work when they resign uh, from another department. But from my standpoint of view, I don't have any control over that national database. But what I can do is on our end is to say, if you are a person that has been had to resign or was fired because of uh, misconduct, we're not going to hire you here in Baltimore County. And uh, that's the way, you know, that's the way that'll go. Uh, but the national database, I think I'm optimistic that that will pass because a national database says, okay, now we know it, but now what? Does it mean that the person does not get hired? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, one question I had was the, the you know, we want to keep 
a database on you know, police involved shootings for when they kill people. What about if they just shoot someone and the person doesn't die or they're injuring people? Um, or are we just going to collect the data on just the amount of people that police kill? Um, no, there is a, the, 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 the bill itself is like 14 pages. So it gets into specific detail about the information we will keep. And it will deal with any use of force. Okay. Gun, taser, mace, spray, baton, dog, car. Any use of force will be uh, stored there. And some of these things, I might add uh, a few of these items in a maybe a different form, but a few of these items are in place now. Um, but what, what this bill will do is add a little more to the, in some, in some cases, a little more to it, and it will codify it into law. In other words, a policy or procedure, uh, the powers to be, whether it be the police chief, can change that policy in any time he or she likes without any public input at all. Once these things are codified into law, the only way you can get around the law is to change the law which requires a process and which will require uh, public input like we're, like we're doing right now. Awesome. Um, a question about um, the whistleblower protection, because I think it's important that we protect the good police officers. But a question was, is there an incentive for police officers to expose another officer for misconduct on the job? Well, there is no incentive other than to say right now this will be the law that you must do it and if you don't do it you'll be violating the law whereas before you may have violated a policy but here you'll violate the law and what we uh there are some cases where police officers have come forward and stepped up and said enough is enough to another officer or intervened and then they became the brunt of disciplinary uh, uh, procedure because of what they did. So that's why we put the whistleblower part in there. And the truth be told, even on the other one where we say we're not gonna hire somebody, we push that up to the police chief. If it happens to be one of these people that lost their job because they did the right thing, then only person in that department can hire that person would be the police chief. And there'll be some, you know, there'll, there'll be a process there. But we do care about the officers who step forward and do the right thing. Absolutely. They need protection, too, um, and legally. And so a question was about the state's attorney's office. Is the state's attorney office on board with this, um, supporting all of these initiatives and reforms that you want to put, play, uh, put in place? Or is there pushback from the state's attorney's office as well? Um, because that really has the teeth, um, you know, to make some of these you know, misconduct violations stick? Well, we, we, I have not had any conversations with the state's attorney, Scott Schellenberger. Okay. Um, I have sent a copy of the bill to my colleagues. Uh, so they've had it to review. Now, whether they did or not, I don't know. But uh, I have not had any conversations with Scott Schellenberger about it. And I look forward to talking with him about it as well. But, you know, uh, I guess the, the important thing that I, I want to mention, Brendan, is, you know, these things are being demanded by the public, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the, you know, we talk about why are we doing it? Well, because I, I think over the years, we've come to a place where police officers, training police officers, experts training them are constantly 
moving the needle or shortening the fuse to the point where they're not taking any chances. I mean, if they don't see your hands and they think you have a gun, then they shoot you. And then we find out that the person doesn't have a gun. And, and, and so, I mean, these are the type of training that needs to change. I mean, I can think of, I've looked at a lot of different incidents and what you will often hear police say is, well, we have to make split second decisions. I can appreciate that, but often, often there's things you can do before you have to make that split second decision. So you don't have to make a split second decision. There's things you can do that will buy you time so that you can decide whether or not you should use deadly force or not. And I'm going to combine two questions that I have here in the chat box. Um, some of those de-escalating situations in the trainings, do you have a specific um, program in mind or strategies in mind? And, you know, is there any talk of including other professionals like social workers, psychiatrists, you know, to help um, inform police officers on some of these de-escalation strategies? Okay, so what I'm going to be doing is um, taking a look at some of the programs that they've already selected, the police department have already selected. I'm going to be meeting with some members of the police department training academy, and I suspect that, and I certainly will be meeting with the police chief to discuss some of these issues myself, because what I'm finding is uh, some of these de-escalation de techniques is not what I had in mind. In other words, I give you an example. Earlier, I talked about the young kid at Woodlawn High School that was punched in the face repeatedly by a police officer. Well, imagine what would happen if the officer reached for his hand to put the handcuffs on him. He pulls his hand back. What if she were to say, stop, wait a minute, call your mother, call your father, I'm gonna talk to them. Hello, mom, dad, this is what's happening. We have to do this thing, blah, blah, blah. Talk to your son and tell him to please cooperate with us. We'll meet you down at the precinct. Imagine that scenario. Or better yet, all right, I tell you what, young man, you're 16 years old. Stand up. Let us make sure you don't have a weapon. We're going to put you in the car. Maybe we don't have to put handcuffs on you. The, the idea is to reimagine policing as we know it and try to come up with some alternatives. I, I give you a, another quick example. Uh, it just happened in November on, on 83, where a mother calls for help for her son who's suicidal. The police pull him over. He doesn't comply with their orders. They tell him, don't get out the car. He says, I'm getting out of the car. The police officer's on the passenger side of the car. There's two of them there. The guy opens the door to get out of the car. This police goes around the car. And as soon as this guy opens the door and takes two steps towards the rear, shoots him eight times. Well, if you're on this side of the car, you're in a safe position. Why do you have to go and confront him? Stay where you are behind the cover and wait to see if he has a weapon or not. And that guy would be here today if, if, if there wasn't a rush to go around and shoot him. But this is the way the officers are trained. That's why I say we have to really look at how they're trained and put another narrative or another option on the table because the experts have agreed that what that officer did is the way it's supposed to go down. 
And oh, well, if that guy's unarmed and he's shot and killed, oh, well. I mean, I hate to put it that way, but. But you're right, though. But that, I think that's sort of the narrative. And you hear a lot. I feared for my safety. And so I needed to protect myself and my fellow officers. And the citizen had to die. And so you're making a great point that we need to really reimagine and rethink of how we're policing the community. Um, and, and I think your reform has a, has a lot of good measures inside. Um, we, we have a group with us. If you have a few minutes to, can I, can I open it up to some more questions? Sure. sure. Um, Shea, do you want to jump in? Yeah. So um, my question was, will there be any consequences for officers turning off their body cams? So I know that that's been a thing lately where they're turning off their body cams and it's hard to see what happened in the situation. So I just wanted to know if there will be any consequences when those happen. Okay. So my uh, document is sort of, you know, we have a, we have a two weeks before I introduce it and we're looking into that uh, right now. I remember police departments around the country, people turning off the body cams. Mm -hmm. We have policies in place that punish officers to do that, and we have not had that here. Not to say it could never happen, but so far we have not had any cases where officers are turning off the body cams. But the point is well taken. It's something we're looking at. Marlene, do you want to jump in? Yes, good evening. Um, Mr. Jones, uh, I really like what you're doing, um, what you're attempting to do, and uh, I agree with all of it. But my concern is that state's attorneys, you see that when the police are, are doing these, uh, 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 making these violations uh, to, to, the, to the people, the state's attorney has to charge the policeman when you have a state's attorney that won't charge them, they're still going to get away with what they're doing regardless. Isn't that correct? Well, that is, is correct. Correct. Uh, that, that, that is correct in, in terms of criminally. Uh, there's a process that, uh, you know, the state's attorney is dealing with the criminal behavior. And then, of course, the department has policies and procedures that they deal with as well. So even though a person may not be charged criminally, does not necessarily mean they may not lose their job. That said, the state's attorney is elected by the citizens of Baltimore County. And if, uh, if the state's attorney doesn't do what the citizens think he or she should do, then they certainly have a right to uh, not vote for that person the next time. Well then, and, and you see- that pressure on them to do what you want them to do. That is, that is uh, the problem. No one is uh, challenging Schellenberger. So how do you, how, is there a, a lawyer pool that you can go to, to have someone to uh, run against this man? Because he's been winning by default. Well, I, uh, I don't think that there's a pool. I mean, any attorney, I believe, uh, I believe that's the qualifications can apply for that job and campaign for it. Uh, I hear what you're saying. And uh, I guess think that, you know, there's a process and, you know, I'm not, I, I hate to put it like this, but you know, I can only do what I can do and I'm doing my best here. Um, but I think, 
the biggest thing we can do is shed a light on all of these issues. And uh, if people are not satisfied, then they need to make their concerns known. And then uh, if people, you know, get too much pushback from the citizens, I'm sure somebody else will step up and run for that job. Thank you, Marlene, for that question. It's a great question. Uh, Michelle, did you want to jump in? Yes, thank you. And thank you so much um, for all you're doing. Um, how can we look at the initial background checks for new officers and putting um, more extensive background checks for them in the process? And in addition, how can we also support these young officers in their trainings, um, maybe as far as uh, psychology classes or supports with um, social workers, additional trainings that we can put before they're getting on the road. So it's not um, sort of that on the job training, but just additional supports in place prior to when they're actually interacting with the public. Well, I think, um, let me see. Uh, the police department right now doesn't, but I think to be a reasonable good background, there are some additional things that are in this bill in terms of looking at people's associations and maybe adding a few more items, but they also go through a psychological background. I mean, I mean, a, a examination as well. So um, I don't know how much more we can do. Uh, we could probably require more. These are some of the things that we're going to be looking at as we're moving forward. Like I said, this bill is a start. I don't think it will be the last thing. Um, we'll see how that works out. But the point is well taken. Listen, most police officers Thank you. want to do a good job. I think most of them certainly want to do a good job. Uh, it's a training academy, in my opinion, oftentimes you know, like I said, make them become very, very sensitive to beat the bad guy to the draw or the punch or whatever. Problem is, instead of us waiting to see a weapon, oftentimes people are taking action when they think there's a weapon. And many cases, they turn out not to be a weapon. But it's still a dangerous job. Bruce, do you want to jump in and ask your question? And happy Father's Day. <laughs> no? All right, let's go. Dalen, do you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, Brendan, I, I, Brendan? Yeah, like we can hear you. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was trying to figure this out. This digital technology is new to me. I appreciate the councilman for all his efforts. My question, and it's, this is probably outside your bailiwick, but I listened to the Republicans uh, lists their strategy. And one of the things that Tim Scott had mentioned was that qualified immunity was a poison pill for the Republican Party. And it was kind of off the list. My question is, and I don't, since I don't live in Maryland, I don't know if police officers there are licensed. One of the objections to qualified immunity was, well, if policemen can be sued and their personal property seized because of actions they've taken, that will diminish the quality of officers that, recruit, that are recruited. That sentiment struck home with me and it lasted about 15 minutes. My question is that other professionals are licensed, doctors, nurses, 
psychiatrists, physical therapists, teachers, or whatever. Now, those individuals procure malpractice insurance. So in terms of policemen, district attorneys, if they violate the Brady law and don't disclose information that would tend to exonerate defendants, those defendants say serve 10 to 15 years in prison. Then they find out the policemen in the prosecutors committed malpractice, but they can't be prosecuted or they can't be sued. My question is what would preclude policemen from being licensed and they have to buy malpractice insurance? Because I think until they are held personally responsible for their actions, I don't think we're gonna see much, much change. Well, I appreciate the question. It's a very good question. Let me just say, every police officer in the state of Maryland must go through training that's regulated by the the, uh, Maryland State Police Training Commission. So that's the the first thing, uh, for them to be a certified Maryland State Police. So that's somewhat of a license right there. Uh, Now, in terms of immunity, uh, I have... You know, it's sort of like the verdict is out with me on that one. I'm not sure whether or not an officer should be sued individually. Because uh, I can tell you right now, they already have insurance. It's called Baltimore County. It's called the Citizens of Baltimore County. That's the insurance right now. We are self-insured. So when people sue, uh, you know, Baltimore County pays that tick, pays that bill. I do... Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not sure about that. I haven't thought that one through. I know about it. I'm just not sure if a person comes to work, does what he or she think they should do, that they should be sued as an individual personally for it. I mean, right now, like I said, I mean the county and we end up paying in some cases. A, hefty bills. Uh, you look at what happened with the Korean Games, uh, the judgment was $30 million. Um, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I The county I was able to have that thrown out. So, But that process is going maybe not $30 million, but we're going to pay something. $30 million, I thought to myself, that's what we pay for an elementary school. That's what an elementary school costs, $30 million. And it served the citizens for 20 or 30 years. Uh, but anyway, uh, I don't I don't know. I sort of like the verdict is out on that one, for me at least. All right, Dalen, do you want to jump in with your question? Sure thing, sure thing. Uh, can everyone hear me uh, really well? Yeah. Great. All right, so my question is, um, I, first of all, I understand that Police officers go through mandatory training. They go through a mandatory psychological evaluation as well. But given the fact that being a police officer is really a high-stress job, is there any conversation around making psychological evaluations periodic and mandatory, i.e. every six months, every year, every 18 months, or anything like that? Because I think as the world continues to progress, having these or having these psychological um, evaluations along with cultural testing, cultural sensitivity, and user bias may come up in a way that can pretty much facilitate a conversation that otherwise wouldn't happen. Uh, It's a great question, and it's something that I've been looking at. 
Uh, right now, we have an employee assistance program that certainly gives an officer an opportunity to talk to a clinician uh, if, they, if they step forward and say, I have a problem. We have a process where a supervisor can send you there if you have a problem. But in the police department today, we have certain units, for example, I guess found this out, uh, like the sex crimes unit. They're operating off of a grant and they're getting additional fundings. But what comes with that funding is every year, every one of those officers must sit in front of a clinician for an hour. And what they do with that hour is up to them, but they must. And one of the things I learned in the fire department and the reason why I was so interested in it is because we used to have a, you know, a, a program, a critical incident stress debriefing team, and we had all of these things in place to help people. But it was always incumbent upon the firefighter coming forward saying, I have a problem. And oftentimes that just did not happen. So then we moved to another point where we say, okay, after a critical call, everyone's going to go and sit in front of a a counselor, whether you like it or not. And like I said, what you do with that time is up to you, but at least you're going to have to go there to get rid of this stigma. So the point you're making is very good one. And uh, we're going to look into it. And one of the things I did not move forward initially was, I don't know whether it's going to cost. These are things we have to look at and see whether or not we can, uh, you know, what the cost is of doing that. Yeah, I think to one of the questions, well, first of all, thank you for that response. And second of all, uh, in response to that, one of the questions I was asked earlier about that personnel insurance, actually having that included in some way, shape or form to like the health plan or whatever, the insurance will actually cover the officer. I think that's how we can pretty much cover that cause. Because I do see that as being necessary. Um, just for any, even for officers don't really present a quote unquote problem, just because of the stigma and the stress that comes along with that job, that's that's unfathomed in any other industry that we see. So I think we can make the case to say that being a police officer is uniquely different. Therefore, there's a need for this to be periodic and mandatory. Okay, I like it. And, you know, we're gonna look at it. Do you have time for two more questions? Sure. Uh, Karen, go ahead. Hi, Councilman Jones. Thank you for being here with us this evening. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Um, I am, I have a question about the certification. So when I go in and I read COMAR, um, that there uh, is a recertification process for teachers, I mean, for um, officers, police officers. And as an educator, I also have a recertification process. It's very specific about what I have to do. Um, I see, according to Comar, there's some firearms like training, but I'm just wondering what the requirements are beyond firearms training. Um, so, uh, you know, I, myself as a school counselor, I have specific classes related to that part of my certification that I have to take, as well as my elementary and early childhood recertification. So I'm just wondering if you know what that recertification process looks like for, um, for officers. And the other thing, I think it's important to make a distinction. There's a broad distinction between licensing and certification. Um, I do have a certification as an educator, but I also have a license as a counselor. And I had to complete 
above and beyond to become a licensed counselor. And, and again, associated with that, there is another level of education that I have to continue. So thank you for the question. Uh, number one, let me just say, uh, you know, I'm not an expert, right? So I've looked at these things and I, uh, I know based on my communications with officers and their mandatory training goes far beyond just the, uh, the shooting with the gun. They have all sorts of mandatory classes that they must take. In fact, uh, one of the uh, officers told me he thinks the problem is they have so much mandatory training. It costs so much money on the department to do that training. There's hardly any room or space to do anything above it. So like every police officer must have to go through in-service training where they try to get in all of these regulations that they must comply with, whether it be uh, medical training, whether it be training on individuals that have some type of uh, mental disability uh, or challenge. Uh, it, it, it's an awful lot of training he told me they have to go through. And he said it leaves very little time for anything else in terms of things that he thought that they should be training on. So I'm sorry I don't have more specifics about that. May I, May I speak? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is Marlene McBride again, um, Julian. Um, I. I am Corinne Gaines's grandmother, as you know. There, I was, you know, but and so I was there, and in talking to those negotiators that day, that was in the room with the family, we asked them what kind of training did they they go through, and that officer said that they don't go through any special training to be a police negotiator. <laughs> that in his training that they're told that the public, we are uh, the enemy. And so they are trained to just to, to kill us like that. And he said that they went through seven months of, of training in Florida. I don't know how true that, that is, but I found that um, in that situation, Baltimore County's policemen, they conspired to kill Corinne and the biggest problem, I believe, is that they knew that there would be no repercussions behind it, that they were not going to have any problems, that it would be okay for them to do what they did. They made so many violations, it was terrible. Well, it's no doubt about it. Uh, what happened to Corinne was uh, a tragedy. It should not have happened. Uh, and uh you know that's a classic case where uh most of us would say why don't you surround the building but well, let's not forget this is for failure to appear for traffic violation oh say that again julian let's not forget that <laughs> you know? and, that's, and that's sort of like mm. part of this whole issue right like it yes. doesn't matter what the infraction is mm -hmm. you you bring in the police and who knows what the end may be mm -hmm. or failure to appear for a traffic violation. And most of us agree, well, why, why, what is the harm in just standing outside and waiting? Yeah. You know, 
what some people used to joke with me and say, you know, had this been in a certain other place, maybe we'd be like day 15, the standoff continues. The, you know, the lady inside is ordering steak and lobster and they bringing it into her. I mean, I don't know all of that, but, but the point I'm making is there was no reason in my opinion to be in a position where you felt threatened and then you had to shoot and kill this young lady and shoot her five-year-old child. Now, you know, initially the, the answer was, well, we were taught never to back up. Well, this is not Iwo Jima. This is Randallstown. And it was no reason to be in a position where you had to do that. So then the other answer people said to me was, well, we didn't know what she was going to do to her child. Well, it's her child. She had her child for five years and she hasn't harmed her child yet. So why would we think she's going to do something to her child? So you're telling me you're doing this to protect her child. And in the end, you shot and killed the mother and shot the child. So obviously we could have done a lot better there. It's oh a tragedy. I'm sorry to get a little upset, but you know, there we have it. This is why this reform is so necessary. And that's why we appreciate you, you know, pushing this towards the council in Baltimore County, uh, Ms. McBride. Thank yes. you for joining us. Um, and I want to let Vernon has a question. I'm going to let Vernon jump in. All right. Thanks, Brendan and uh, Mr. Jones for doing this. Um, one question. I, I just want to know if, and I apologize if this has been asked already, but what does the uh, equity training or diversity training look like for the police department? Who delivers it? And, and is it mandatory for every officer who is brought into to that fold? I believe that it is mandatory. I'm not sure exactly what it looks like. Um, I tell you, I don't know what it looks like, but it's one of the things we're going to be looking at. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm going to be going down to the training academy, and I'm going to be meeting with the chief and some members of the academy to unfold these things. Because I can tell you, uh, when I talk about the incident, and it's right there, if you ever want to see what I'm talking about, you go to YouTube and you type in I-83 Baltimore Police, and you will see this scene and you go to like 10 minutes and you can get right to where the shooting occurs. And I had an officer dissect that for me. And he said, well, they were using de-escalatory techniques. And I said, well, where? He said, when he asked the gentleman to please put his car in park, that was de-escalatory. I said, but he walked up with the gun in his hand. How does that de-escalating anything? And so anyway, I have to really dive into what exactly is the training that we're calling for. Because like I said before, all of these things are made by police for police. And over time, I think the pendulum have swung to the point where they unabated, they've just moved probably a little too far, which is evident by the outcry in this nation today that they want to sort of move that back some. Right. Can I, can I ask one more quick thing? Um, sure. as, as you move forward in your work, um, how much support are you getting from police unions in this reform? Uh, right now, I've had uh, some conversations with the union president. Uh, I, would, I showed him an article where I was encouraged by three large unions from California put out full page ads in the Washington Post, New York Times, and 
saying that they're open to reforms and, you know, the things that they suggested. He is agreed to review uh, the, my bill, and we have agreed to come back and communicate in terms of, you know, what he has issues with, things that I'm not willing to bend on. And, you know, we can, we can try to see if, if, if there's a way that we can make this thing better. But I am committed to, to work with anyone and talk with anyone that is uh, about making it better. And that's what I want to do. So I know it's a challenge. There's no guarantee that my colleagues are going to vote for it. But I am hopeful that uh, when it comes time to vote, that there will be sufficient uh, public input where they will see that this is something that the public wants and needs. Um, so there you have it. Councilman, I really appreciate your time um, speaking with us and providing us with that information. We hope that you can come back um, in a couple months and share sort of the progress that you've made and um, you know, give us a little bit more information about the trainings and, and how it's going. Um, we're here to support you um, and we, we thank you for you know, supporting Maryland communities and uh, making sure that you know, the people that are sworn to keep us safe are actually, that's their main priority. Um, so we thank you for your time and your information and thank you for your work. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you uh, having me on and I appreciate everybody's interest in being yes. here. And uh, your questions was very nice and I learned so much and I took some notes. Uh, we're gonna look at some things to try to make this bill better as we move forward. Um, this bill was not intended to be a, you know, end all but it is certainly some things that came to my mind at that time, and we're still working on some things. Um, I think we're, you know, in, in closing, I think we are at a point where right now a lot of police officers that do a very good job, the dangers of their job is not lost on me. It is a dangerous job. I, I was reminded that, uh, you know, I was there in the hospital with Amy Caprio's uh, family. And of course I went to her funeral and it, those things are not lost on me. But I do believe that once we get beyond the, the point where people feel threatened, because right now I think the answer is, who are you? You're a firefighter, what do you know about our job? Well, what I'm here to tell you is the public is crying out. The public is saying, we're not happy with the job you're doing. So. And if you look at what's happening across the country, it is certainly in their interest to look at how they can do things better. Because if you look at what happened within this last month, more police officers have been fired, charged with serious crimes, things that in the past that's would not, that, that would, would, would not have been the action taken. But the public is saying enough is enough. We want something different. So we're going to, you know, I'm hoping that this is a time that we as a uh, people in this country, that we all the citizens can get stick with this because at the end of the day, it's going to take strategic long-term planning to bring about a change. The marching is great. The marching brings awareness. The marching put pressure on people, but we have to stay engaged and make sure that we see these reforms through to the end. So thank you very much for having me.